I'm from the. I'm actually from the East Bay originally. You know, and I, I was just. Oh, uh, are you? Well, Southeast Bay. The, the, you know, I was, that would be, mean Hayward or Fremont. That would mean Fremont. Yeah. <laughs> That's what. It's one of those where. It's one of those where if you're from there, you call it the East Bay, but you realize that if you're talking to somebody else from the area, that you have to kind of qualify it as. South Bay is technically is technically East Bay, but although I lived there thirty years, uh, we had we did some recording in um, Hayward. There was <laughs> a studio that we did a lot of recording in, but I cannot, for the life of me, remember any experience of Fremont at all. It's weird. I mean, I think I went there once just because I made a, a, a mission for myself to to go to the last station on <laughs> each of the BART lines. But if I did. Because I remember doing that to, to Concord. This is yeah. back when Bart first opened, and yeah. I went to Concord. At that time, it was like a field, and there were some horses. So I must have gone to Fremont then, and that's it. No, no, no slur on your hometown. No, 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 no none, none taken. I was only ever in San. I was only ever in San Jose once. Oh, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, unless you know, unless you're going to the the new me factory, which is Tesla now, or you know, you want to see MC Hammer's house. There's not a lot of memorable. Memorable landmarks. In MC Fremont. Hammer lived in Fremont, huh? He, he, I thought that was Hayward. No, he he lived. That was where his uh, his his giant um, extravagant mansion was on the hills in Fremont. I know one of the guys that used to record uh, do recording work for us put the sound system in his house. Um, that's where I think I got the impression. I mean, I remember it costing some phenomenal amount back in the late 1980s and all of us being shocked because it was like more than our annual budget for several of us to live. That was in the good days. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the few notable things about growing up in Fremont was, was driving around and seeing his, his various sports cars with um, different hammer singles wow. on, on the... Uh, on the license plates, and if you went to the Northeast Bay, then uh, like I did when I went to interview Isocracy, they all had to take me uh, past Metallica's houses. <laughs> yeah, it's I, the the vast majority of uh, you know, I, and 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 the the, the Barry is a fine place to live, but the vast majority of it is pretty pretty boring tracked housing when you come down to it. Yeah, well, you know, you I don't, you're probably not old enough to remember Herb Kane, the uh, oh sure columnist. Yeah, yeah, he used to refer to the East Bay as East Berlin. <laughs> the, the the Soviet side side of the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah, he just would call it East because he, you know, he was kind of like, you know, a few years ago it was like that here where Manhattan people would be like, I would never cross the river. I yeah. mean, like, why would I want to go out to Brooklyn and Queens? You know, things have changed, and to some extent, I think they changed out there too because you know, I, I felt like we we. Uh, when when our little music scene kind of started erupting, we we were kind of making a big deal out of that, saying you know this is East Bay, not San Francisco, not West Bay, and that kind of thing. And uh, and they got really annoyed when we would refer to them as West Bay instead of San the city or San Francisco. Um, but yeah, we were we had this little really feisty kind of working class um, mentality. That this is of course when I say our scene started growing it was long before any of the bands got sure. famous but just when we just when we opened Gilman and started trying to I don't know make a name for ourselves or put ourselves on just declare our presence really that that was one of the things that that we did which used to annoy the, the West Bay people no end what was the I say uh, that having have Having lived in San Francisco myself for for some time, what, what was the what was the breakdown? Yeah, you know, what was the importance of uh, of separating the, the the East from West Bay? 
I mean, it was just something that sort of spontaneously erupted, as as it often does when a new scene kind of develops. You sort of, I mean, you see it in the animal kingdom too. They got to stake out their territory or their ground and say, "This is this is my place." You know, some some guy buys a new house and he wants to make some special decorations around it to say, "Okay, now I have arrived." It's kind of it was kind of that, but it was added to by the fact that we had this so we were you know the east bay had been sort of looked down as east berlin and as a kind of this drab gray uninteresting nowhere place for so many years and it, it was kind of us like saying look we got something special that nobody else has yeah. and we're we're create uh, i mean i I related a lot to growing up in Detroit, which was very much the same thing that happened when I was a teenager with the Motown scene and with the MC5 and Stooges kind of scene. In both cases, we, we really had this kind of chip on our shoulder thing about how, oh yeah, well we don't need your fancy pants culture from the East Coast or the West Coast. We got our own stuff here. But at the same time, we were kind of uncertain about it mm-hmm. because at that time, that was before the democratization of culture where you know you could where you had such a DIY thing you know where anybody could just start a scene anywhere it, and most of the time when I was growing up it was more this thing you had to somehow get a, a big talent scout to discover you and take you off to fame and fortune and in order for that to happen you usually had to go either to New York or to California Motown was one of the first examples of like a homegrown thing that actually became bigger than hmm. anything that the that the big boys out on the coast could do, and it was from a um, almost sub working class background. I mean, a lot of the first stars from Motown came from the projects. They weren't just like factory workers, like like my background. They were they were like you know from the projects. So that was one of my earliest inspirations, actually, seeing the Supremes when they were uh, first starting out. And there was like these three girls from one of the worst projects on, in Detroit. And and suddenly they were national stars. And this was this big kind of local pride thing that like, whoa, you know, we don't just make ugly cars here in Detroit. We Now we can do something that turns the whole country on its head. And and it just felt like awesome. And I, I think I, I felt a lot of that same kind of feeling when the East Bay started hmm. happening, when people started coming from other parts of the country and instead of wanting to move to San Francisco, they wanted to come to the East Bay. You know, obviously you've, you're still in touch with a, a lot of the, the younger bands. You, you put out that compilation recently. And I'm wondering if that's still a phenomenon that you're seeing, you know, especially as you said, everything's becoming much more decentralized with the Internet. I, I think it's much. It's come become so decentralized and democratized now to the point where it's almost hard to have a local scene. We, had, I think, we had the benefit of starting out the, the lookout and East Bay and Gilman scene at a time when the internet hadn't quite happened, but a lot of the technology that preceded it did. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember when. In fact, I was talking to Aaron Comabus just the other night. Mm-hmm. I remember when the first Xerox machines like became easily accessible to ordinary people because there's this kid, well, yeah, teenager that lived near me that started self-publishing his poetry and became a best-selling author. But he was for the first few years he was going around, he was just Xeroxing poems and going around store to store and selling them. 
And that was really the very first example of, you know, self-publishing publishing by modern mass technology that I'd seen. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine today because, you know, you just type it up on the Internet and push send, and it's like all over the world. I mean, getting somebody to look at it's another matter, of course, but um, everything changed so fast. But already by the uh, early... I'm sorry, by the late mid to late 80s, we were we had a lot of technology that made it possible to be your own scene, do your own, be your own record company, which which was not so much around at the beginning at, during the first punk scene in the 70s. Most of those bands went to major labels. The mid to late 80s was the the first time that you know that, well not the first time, but it was kind of when we really made a huge impact on on the culture was there was there sort of an understanding that that um you know once once any one of these bands re- re- achieved a certain note of success that they would they would move on it was kind of a generalized philosophy i i think and i don't want to put thoughts or words in anybody else's head but it felt to me like the idea was that we were going to do it ourselves all the way and it wasn't so much that anybody swore they were never going to sign a contract or move on to a big company or something. It was more like that that seemed like such a far-fetched, un- hmm. unlikely proposition that nobody really gave much thought to it. So it, I think when Green Day did go to the major label, it was it was more shock at, at that than than... I mean, I'm sure there are some people who felt that they were betraying the scene or something, but I think more people were just like, what? People can do that? You know, people from our our dumb little scene can do that? Because I think, you know, I think there was this sense that it was us against the world and we were going to stick together. Did you have any any, any grand ambitions of your own when, when, when you were playing music? Or were you just kind of playing music? Do you mean when... Do you mean when I yeah, when you personally were was playing music? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I had all, if you know, like in uh, in my book, uh, I talk about how you know, although it took years to even get the band started, and against all odds, because we were up on top of this mountain where there was no electricity, <laughs> and uh, sure. the nearest punk rock scene was like a hundred miles away. Even there, the minute that we had any kind of uh, like we had a couple of good practices, and like right away, I I was I said like well we then we took pictures of ourselves because I was sure that the the media would be wanting to, to to know all about us and see what we looked like soon, which you know was didn't turn out to be the case for Lauren for the most part, but yeah, you know I think I had kind of that you know that same sort of feisty underdog working class mentality writ small. I did not. On one hand, I did not really expect to be anything more than a minor celebrity within a very minor punk scene, but at the same time, there is always this fantasy like, well, the Dead Kennedys, they they play all over the world, and, you know, maybe we, that could happen to us, too. How did, how did you end up in the Bay Area? Originally, because I was being chased by the police. Mm. Um, so Fair enough. That was... Uh, I was... I got in a little bit of a misunderstanding with the authorities back in Michigan. Back this is 1968. Yeah. And, uh, first, went to New York and um, 
kind of surprised to hear yeah, that they, the, the cops didn't have a, better things to do in Michigan in 1968. Oh, they, uh, well, you know, I was more of a hippie at that mm-hmm. time, and they uh, they were con- conducting all-out warfare on the hippies sure. for, uh, for a few years there. And I was, uh, I had a big mouse and uh, was not very careful, so... It's not all that surprising, but they they did track me down to New York, and so uh, somebody invited me to come to California, and I did. And it's uh, I like the weather better, and uh, and for the first time in my life, felt like hey, here's someplace I could belong. Uh, by the way, I'm for the sake of your interview, I'm not I'm not still wanted by the police that <laughs> okay. was cleared up way back <laughs> there's then. A, there's, there's also I a had to hide out. Yeah, there's a statute of limitations on statute of limitations on things like that. Yeah, I don't even know how that. It's not so much to that. It's um, I'm because I I I did indeed go deal with it. I, I had to hide out for a year, but I did go indeed go get it sorted out, and um, all is forgiven now. And I've actually been more or less a model citizen since then. So, so you 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 end up in uh, you end up in California um, on a on a a hill with 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 no no power. I mean, is is that just does that tie? I back didn't in? go. I didn't go there. I didn't okay. go there first. Actually, I went to uh, the Bay Area to to Berkeley, well, Oakland first, and then I, I and Berkeley, but mostly Berkeley. And and I was actually in the Bay Area for quite a few years before I ended up on the mountain with no power. <laughs> it was not. It was. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the book yet, but uh, it it kind of explains at the beginning how I had been living in the city for a long time, had loved it, um, had found like felt like I finally found a place, but that I had grown jaded and disillusioned. Um, you know that my my life didn't really mean anything. That I all I did was like go out and go to parties and sure. eat and eat and drink, and um, and it just felt like there was no substance so when I found myself uh, going up to look after this place in the wilderness that my uh, my brother in common law as I call him um, had had bought it it caught my it piqued my interest because as I said that it it looked real that real stuff happened there that I, I had I had an experience on a very chilly late winter night where I thought, geez, if you weren't careful, you could die up here. And, you know, I mean, it seems silly in retrospect because, of course, you could die in the city just as easily from just different types of causes. But up, up there, it looked like, you know, your life, actions had real consequences that, you know, if you didn't get enough firewood or if you didn't watch out for wild animals or, didn't didn't take care of your house the right way, you know, you'd you'd be out in the cold and and you could indeed die and people did indeed die up there. The back to the land movement was a was a pretty big thing around Berkeley. I mean is it is it directly tied to that or is this just just kind of pure no, uh, philosophy? Actually it was not tied into that way. It was maybe kind of an sort of a postscript to it. The movement as I knew it had really come about in the early 70s, you know, kind of when the, the first hippies sort of went ran head on into reality. In fact, the year that I got to San Francisco in 1968, um, you know, one of my first experiences was I was going down Haight Street, which only a year before had been 
sort of portrayed all around the world as the, the center of the summer of love. And you might, I don't know if you ever heard that song, uh, if you're going to San Francisco, wear a flower in your oh, sure. hair. Yeah, well, that, this, just one year before in 1967, when I was still in Michigan, that was kind of the anthem of the summer. And, and people from all over America and even the world were going to San Francisco, much as on a smaller scale, they would come to the East Bay when that whole scene happened in the 80s. But, you know, on a much bigger scale, it was in the 60s. But they, by the, within a few, within, that had been going on through the 60s, but by 67 and 68, you know, it had degenerated into a lot of drug addiction, a lot of crime, um, a lot of disillusionment. And in fact, I got, the day I got onto Haight Street, I ran into somebody from back east, and they were like, I was first very happy to see them, but then my next I was like, wait a minute, they're wearing this like leather coat and all dressed up, not hippie at all, but kind of like inner city shark kind of thing. And they were carrying a briefcase. And and he opens up the briefcase and shows me a gun and a bag of, uh, a large bag of uh, amphetamine and says, man, you, you got here too late. You should have been here last year. Uh, and, and that was kind of the feeling that it was, yeah, that, uh, the hippie dream had gone sour and and you know, was being buttressed or rather assailed rather by uh, violence and um, a lot of people, especially those with uh, families or those who weren't drug addicted uh, or who had like sort of loftier goals for the future, they were they were getting out in a lot of. Um, sort of communal type situations sort of started developing to the to the north, especially in Marin County and Sonoma County, and then later in the 70s in, in Mendocino and Humboldt. But that had kind of sort of started to, it, it was still going on, but on a much, it was not like a, a movement so much. I, I don't know, are you familiar with Common Bus? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, but the, Aaron, Aaron did a whole... Edition of his magazine a few years ago yeah, yeah. on the on the back to the land movement and he tried to lump me in in with it but uh-huh. uh, it wasn't it wasn't completely true I mean he also had an agenda to show that it was just a, an example of suburbanization and white flight which I think was also not I mean there's an element of it sure. of everything and everything but that was not quite what it was but <laughs> and, but you know I. I, 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 I I guess I kind of understand that that standpoint of you know these 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 kids from Berkeley and you're this you're this guy living you're living on a on a on a mountain with no power it's 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 understandable why you might end up you know in that in that lump from their perspective right yeah because especially because the people of Aaron's generation and um, Aaron not him not Aaron in particular his parents were educational professionals but a lot of uh, people of his generation had hippie parents and had very mixed feelings. In fact, Aaron's newest book or magazine, whichever you want to call it, is is very very much it focuses on like this feeling of well that previous generation was this radical counterculture, but we can't connect with it. We know it's, in some ways we really admire what they were doing and want to be part of it. In other ways, they're like so decadent and so out of touch that it's like. We're trying to get over it and recover from it, which is why people of his generation embraced punk 
with a fervor, you know, far surpassing, say, my own. I mean, I thought punk was great. It was just came along just in time when I was getting really, really sick of hippies. But because I was older, I did not like, you know, carve the initials of punk in my in my uh, chest and devote my whole life to it the way that a lot of people of his generation did. I had already done that with hippie. Yeah, that that seems that I, I don't know. At least you know, in in retrospect, that seems like sort of a strange thing to to reconcile. You know, that a move from being a, a quite literal hippie and you know moving to San Francisco and again like living with with no power, and then moving into that punk movement. I mean, don't don't isn't isn't aren't 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 the two uh, life views antithetical? Sort of yeah. Uh, well, um, maybe I didn't make it clear that I was already like, you know, basically aligned with the punk scene quite a bit before mm-hmm. I went to the to the mountains. So it was more like I tried to take punk rock. I mean, I had never completely given up on some hippie values, but um, most of the hippies made me sick. I I I, <laughs> I felt like they those people had ruined the hippie scene, yeah, and that punk was a lot cooler but i still had some of the sort of communal and idealistic values um another example not um i don't know if it's an excellent one but the the guy tim yohannan who's about about a couple years older than me that mm-hmm. started or helped start maximum rock and roll he was also very anti-hippie but when i got to know him better i realized that he'd been part of that whole scene you know different at a different, a different level because he'd grown up on the east coast where they had a different kind of concept of being a hippie and we're not so wide-eyed and wonder filled but um he had that kind of same thing that he still had these values he wanted his version of punk was not so much about destroying everything and being cynical and making a spectacle of yourself as it was to build alternative institutions and and to use that to pursue a political and a cultural agenda um which you know however successful or not as it may have been that's what maximum rock and roll was all about and that's in you know, it was a, a large part what i was uh, about too so i mean also you know i grew up in detroit uh i mean i saw you know my contemporaries were the mc5 and yeah. the stooges who were proto-punk bands at sure. least so i kind of had that mentality about music all for many years and I was living in San Francisco when the Avengers and the Nuns and that sort of uh, those sort of bands came, and of course the Sex Pistols and the Clash came through, and so I was I was very much involved in that early punk scene, except not as a participant. Well, I was like more of a spectator. You know, I was like kind of a guy who went to shows. It didn't it had not yet occurred to me that I could be like putting on the shows or playing the shows. That that took a while longer to figure out. And in fact, that started occurring to me just about the time that I, I I had been trying to start a band in the Bay Area for about a year, um, but was getting constantly frustrated. And punk, believe it or not, seemed to be dying away. I mean, by the by, by the early '80s, like violence and drug abuse and drug ODs and stuff like that seemed to be like destroying what there was of a punk scene in San in the San Francisco area. So that was part of my disillusionment that drove me to the mountains. They were so suspicious when when my girlfriend and I first arrived because, you know, basically we had short hair, which was unheard of on the mountains. Sure. We had, like, punk rock clothes, like tight pants and uh, shiny clothes. And, um, 
and we didn't have a truck. We had like a, a sort of a suburban type car. It was, I mean, we were like, stuck out like, I don't even want a source. I wouldn't be doing justice to sore thumbs to, <laughs> to say how much we stood out. And we didn't, I mean, we knew we were different, but we kind of took pride in that. We didn't want to be like everybody else, but we didn't realize how phenomenally ridiculously different we were until we until we got to know some of the people and then we realized that you know they they all thought they were all gossiping and like what's who are these weirdos what is there what the you know the natural tendency up there was to assume anybody was an arc if you didn't know them until you knew that they were also growing marijuana and or were part of you know your hippie scene yeah Everybody was very suspicious. If you, if on the other hand, you came up there with really long hair and smoking dope and talking about the Grateful Dead, they would trust you with their first firstborn daughter, and which gave, of course, real narcs a, a yeah. real opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> but once they once they started to get to know us, uh, it was, you know, they were they were you know not not everybody. There were certain people that never liked me, but certainly most of our nearby neighbors. I, I got to to know pretty well, and uh, you know, I felt really close to. Plus, we had a there were no telephones up there, and this was before cell phones, so the communication network was uh, via CB radios. Every every house had a CB radio that was on all the time, and that's how you know people communicated. But of course, you know, there was no privacy. You know, if you called somebody, then everybody on that side of the mountain would hear whatever you were talking about. But I felt, you know, I got plugged into the network and, you know, I felt like, you know, when when the lookouts first started, we would uh, occasionally broadcast our practices, but that didn't go over too well with most of the adults. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I imagine you were probably drawing even more attention to yourself when there were a bunch of, you know, punk rock teenagers coming over and, and practicing at your place. Well, there wasn't a bunch of punk rock teenagers. There was specifically two teenagers yeah. who, who were both 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 were uh children of uh of of local people mm-hmm. that I had I had come to know and be friends with. In fact, one of one of our bass player's parents were the ones that had built my house originally and huh. used to live there before I did. And uh, our drummer was one of my nearest neighbors. He was, his family lived a mile down the road. So it wasn't like, you know, there wasn't any kind of scene or sure. bunch of other kids coming over to listen to music. It was basically like, oh, the weirdo Larry is having a, a band, but, you know, it seems like it's a good entertainment for the kids and they're learning how to play an instrument, so why not? Well, you know, it was, they they were probably more tolerant than somebody in the suburbs would have been, let's put it that way. You know, as, as you said before, and, and I, I, I suspect there was a little bit of... of, of um, of humor in the answer, but you, you, you mentioned that you were still kind of, you know, figuring out what to what to do with yourself. And I'm, I'm wondering how much of writing a, a book is is a part of that. You know, are, are you are you thinking about legacy at this point? Are you thinking about shaping the way people are going <laughs> to well, remember you? I don't, I don't I don't know how old you are, but uh, I certainly didn't have any plans to to live this long. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know now, in light of the fact that my mother and several other family members are well into their nineties, I realized that I might still live quite a while so yeah i don't I don't think legacies are are really helpful hmm. things uh to think in terms of, and especially since I'm not likely to 
well, if I won't be around to enjoy them anyway. Um, so I would rather let you know other people decide what, if anything, is worth safeguarding or preserving from from my life. But in terms of just writing, that that's something. I mean, I literally set out to write my first book in 1957, I huh. think, when I was nine, nine or ten years old. I got this idea, this brainstorm that, you know, we, I was first, I was reading about the Roman Empire and I thought, gosh, what will it be like a thousand years from now when they are looking at the ruins of the American yeah. Empire and trying to figure out what, why it, why it collapsed. So I started out this novel uh, well, I didn't know what novels were <laughs> at the time, but this book uh, describing, from the point of view of archaeologists in the year 3000, excavating the ruins of Detroit and trying to figure out why this great civilization had 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 collapsed, much the way that we were, you know, in our time we were doing to Rome, and much um, the way that Detroit it, sort of has actually. <laughs> Yeah, well, that I certainly did not see that one coming, to be honest, at least not so fast. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was there during the the riots of '67, which uh, was probably the the visible beginning of the mm-hmm. the great unraveling or collapse of Detroit. It was very very tragic. But of course, being 19 or 20 years old at the time, I just thought it was exciting um, then. Um, but yeah, I had I had. Although I only got maybe a, a few pages done of my first effort at writing, I've been I've been writing at some level ever since. And in fact, it might sound bizarre, but during many of the years when Lookout Records became like an all-consuming uh, fact at the center of my existence, I mean, I often resented it, despite all the success that it was bringing me, because it took so much time away from my opportunity to write. Yeah, I mean that that's that, that that's something that I've I've always uh, appreciated about you though is that you've um it 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 seems like for the most part you 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 don't really care uh where that writing is going to end up just that you're writing it and that that you know someone will be reading it. I mean, you know, you've you've had call, you know, you were in you were in you're in absolutely Zippo for a while and it seemed like you were I'm very proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it seems like at some Mr. point Zip, you were Mr Mr Zippo was here visiting in uh, New York just a, yeah. a few days ago. Uh, but it's it's Mr. like you're... Who's, who's now forty years old. He was like <laughs> yeah. 14, 14 when he started that. Yeah. Um, but it, it seemed like still you're publishing writing. it. But you're 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 quite right. Yeah. yeah. I, I I feel the job of a writer is to to write, and obviously I I think very few writers would would try to deny that they of course they'd like to be published in a someplace where lots of people would read it. But that's it's never been like a, the primary goal. You just have to write. Yeah. And that's very much similar to my attitude about, about when I was started making records or both for myself and for other people, you know, people often ask, well, what was your plan? What was your goal? Were you thinking you wanted to sell thousands or millions of records? And I was like, you know, I didn't expect that would happen, but at the same time, I certainly was open to the possibility. <laughs> I was, willing to sell 500 records or 5 million records. It was however many want, people wanted to listen to them. I was happy to make that many records, and that's more or less the same case with, and always has been with my writing. What what was the impetus for the book? I mean, obviously it's something you've been talking about and, and working on for a while now. Well, the um, the immediate impetus was 
simply the editor of the local paper, not the one that stopped publishing me, but I, I should clarify there was more than one local paper. Uh, the one that from which I was banished was the Laytonville Ledger, and that was the the nearest small town about 20 miles away from us. Um, but there was an, almost every town up there had its own newspaper, and one of them was the Anderson Valley Advertiser in Boonville, California, which has at several points attained national and international notoriety because its editor and publisher is a kind of Mark Twain, H.L. Uh, Mencken type character, mm-hmm. who very old-fashioned crusading journalist who takes no prisoners. And I mean, basically, the the although his I mean his his writing and the writing of others that he publishes stands out. Um, from almost any other newspaper because it's very, very left-wing and very confrontational, but it's also of a quality that you almost never encounter in journalism anymore. If he had lived 100 years ago, he probably would have been as famous as, as Twain or Mencken. Now he's kind of... He has a few thousand really devoted fans, but he also has a lot of enemies. And at any rate... You know, we were kind of kindred spirits, and he 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 started reprinting a lot of articles from the lookout, um, and we became friends over the years. And when he when he went to jail for punching out the superintendent of schools, I <laughs> edited the paper. It's a weekly paper. I edited it in his absence, uh, and he had been bugging me. He's still at it. He's in his seventies now, but he's still at it. Puts out the paper every week, and now it's even online, and. He'd been bugging me for years, you know, why don't you write an article about Spyrock? Because he, he, he lived in town, but he was really fascinated with life up in the hill, mm-hmm. in the hills or the mountains, and he, and the, the various kinds of people who he called hill muffins uh, often. Um, and, you know, write, write something about it. And it was, it was a few summers ago, I was, I was out at the beach for the, for the summer, and I said, okay, I'll, I'll finally do it. And I'd written an article of about three, four thousand words, and I realized that I had only just all. I hadn't even really got there yet. I had just was describing how I first discovered the place and what it was, uh, what it was like, and what was drawing me to it. And so I said, "Gee, I guess I'm going to have to write more than one part." And that's how it. And it that's how it grew into a book. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was he, he was serializing episodes from it for a while, and. But after about six months or a year, I said, "Geez, this is this whole thing is book length." Um, my friend, my friend Joe Steinhardt, who runs Dodd Giovanni Records, mm-hmm. uh, we're we're walking companions. Uh, we we go on long hikes all over the New York area and talk mostly about well everything, politics, economics, and record businesses and stuff like that. But. You know, he started bugging me. Why don't you let me publish it? And I was like, Well, I was thinking I might publish it myself. And he made a very eloquent case why somebody else should publish it, and what, persuaded what was, me. What was that case? Well, basically, that well, I, you know, given modern technology, I could probably do a pretty decent job of publishing it myself. Mm-hmm. But that at this point, why, you know, I. Why not concentrate on on writing mm. and let somebody else who's primarily interested in the business end of things take care of that? You know that they were in a position to. You know it was it was much 
you know, otherwise he said I might get into the same situation I was back when I was running Lookout and complaining that I never had time to work on my own music or my own writing. Yeah. Because I was so so busy managing everybody else's. And and he also pointed out that, you know, he had learned a lot about from running his record label about how to get things out to the public. The eye operating on my own would not have a a chance to or the opportunity to do which is almost certainly true i mean it's it is it is the case that lookout records managed to draw a lot of attention thanks to a few of the bands getting big but um it was probably no not through any genius of my own i i mean i never even had the nerve or the wherewithal to approach most of the mainstream media outlets I mean, even in the East Bay, we we had been around for years before, like even even uh, a, a publication like the East Bay Express ever took notice of us. It was it was like they were busy writing about every touring band, and like it was it was not until after Green Day that they were like, hmm. "Oh, our, our great new, our our great local scene." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, how how smoothly did you did you make the transition to to uh, to to the internet because you know, I I've noticed that certainly some of your contemporaries from 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 the Berkeley scene at least um, haven't made much of a jump online. Yeah, that's kind of funny, isn't it? Um, I I've, I used to I used to argue with some of them, like saying, "Why are you shutting every you know ninety percent of the world out from yeah. your work?" And they have different arguments. I don't have the arguments anymore. They have different opposing viewpoints. Uh, but a lot of it sounds suspiciously like back in 1989 when it was like a f- furious debate in the punk scene as to whether it was punk or not to put your record out on CD. Sure. Like, sure. or if real punks only only did vinyl. Um, and, and believe it or not, there are still people today that it's only real punk if it's on cassette. <laughs> Which, you know, in the, other the words... The worst that, format ever. <laughs> Yeah, in other and 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 pr- probably ninety nine percent of the people in the world won't be able to ever yeah. listen to it unless they go out and buy a special piece of equipment yeah. that most people don't want or have any other need for. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a ongoing argument. Probably goes back a lot farther than than the eighties or the sixties or whatever, where. What's more important, the uh, integrity of your work or the fact that you reach uh, lots of people? Sure, and you know, sure. it's kind of—I don't know—are you familiar with the, the Heisenberg principle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the it's, kind of, it's kind of like I think. I think yeah, you not, nothing can be observed without it being yep. changed. And I think a lot of uh, alternative or underground uh, artists—they really genuinely fear that that like by being observed by the wrong kind of people or too many people, it will change them. I, I don't think that they maybe think that consciously, but uh, subconsciously they they probably do. And I, I reached a point at which I was like, yeah, of course things will change. They will change whether I want them to or not. Mm-hmm. They will not stay the same. No, and you know, I had I had to go through very much the same debate with myself. There was um, uh, one or two turning points with with Lookout Records where I could either 
let it stay as it was and recognizing that in a couple more years it would start to fade away and be insignificant or let it develop in which case it would be it would turn into something completely different and almost unrecognizable and um i really debated this a lot you know it, it would not just change lookout records it would change the whole scene that i had been part of and um I, you know, I think that my time in in the mountains and my very close interrelationship with nature had a, had a big influence on my decision because, you know, when you're living there and almost almost the only thing that ever happens, uh, apart from bears wandering into your house or something, is is you know the passage of the seasons. I mean, you could where I lived, I could I could have I could easily if I chose go for weeks or months at a time and not seeing another human being. Mm-hmm. And so you you see nature unfolding at a at its at its pace, you know, sometimes with frightening rapidity and other times with just inexorable slowness. But watching the seasons come and go, and I made this analogy, well, yes, if lookout explodes into this great big flowering of, of culture and commerce um, it will it will reach an end hmm. but that's kind of like what happens here on the mountain every year like there, there's this like you sit there in, in darkness and cold and uh, sterility for several months and then suddenly within weeks everything just like explodes into life and like spectacular beauty and then there's this rich period of, uh, of summer and then it you know it all die shrivels up and turns colors and passes away and dies but only to plant the seeds for another for another year and that's kind of like you know it i was like for me to to try and control what what happens with this cultural movement with this scene would be as silly as for me to to try and stop the seasons from progressing and so I said, "Well, let's just let's just go with it and, and see what happens." You know, and certainly it's um, it's easy to bemoan the loss of, of of a lot of these things, but at the same time, it's it, it's really easy to risk becoming a a, a museum. You know, just <laughs> just sort of a living, <laughs> you know, a, you know, living a living or, or a mausoleum, mausoleum, yeah, mausoleum, sure. yeah, to to something <laughs> um, that happened thirty you know, years ago. But, it's funny because Aaron, Aaron, and Aaron Cumbus and I talk about these issues still. I mean, we're 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 great friends now, and we regularly meet and chew these issues over. <laughs> and, um, I mean, his reputation for being an old stick in the mud or uh, <laughs> uh, traditionalist is is much. It, it's not as true as as people would think he's way more open to the modern era than than people would suspect i mean no he's not publishing on the internet but it's not like he's at war with it either and sure. he will he will use it when it makes sense for for his purposes but you know he is very traditional in in his way of publishing and we do often debate back and forth about the various merits and of how you go about getting your work out but we've been having that discussion uh, since 1986 or so, and um, and it's it's much more uh, 
it's much more moderate and temperate and and helpful now than it than it used to be but there are in fact other people who who do just resist i mean i i have friends from that era that we still that refuse to have a cell phone or an email address still and and i i meet other people of you know a little bit younger than me, but not, not that, that much younger, but who are, have always lived in mainstream society. And I, I describe the, this kind of mentality and they just like, what? Why? Yeah. Some, that's like kind of somebody trying to be a hermit in the middle of the big city. Sure. It just doesn't make any sense, but it does make a certain amount of sense. It's just not something that's for me. I'm, I'm very grateful that I've had this opportunity to remain at least somewhat in touch with, uh, in, you know, multiple layers of culture and generations um you know that i i'm thinking of the people when i was a very young man and had just was starting out on my own in the world um the kind of people who were the age i am today seemed like you know incredibly old like they were ready to get packed off to the to the nursing home and that might have been just my perception to some extent but it, it. I never would have dreamed that you could be this this old and still like go to shows and go running around the city and learning about all sorts of new things and hearing about all sorts of new ideas and cultures. Um, and certainly, the internet is a big part of that, a major part of that. Um, so it would. It it can it can also be a. I'm sure almost all artists I know also relate how. It can be a problem because mm-hmm. it distracts you so much from yeah. from doing your work. I sometimes wonder how I wasted, how I managed to waste so much time before there was an internet. All right, there you go. That, uh, of course, was Larry Livermore. Um, it's nice to, nice to finally put a voice with the byline. That, that's that's one of those. Uh, if, you, if you grew up as a, a punk rock enthusiast in the Bay Area, that's one of those names that you saw all over the place. Uh, of course, as a founder of Lookout Records, uh, a member of the Lookouts, uh, he he founded Lookout Magazine. A lot of a lot of Lookout themed uh, themed ventures going on with Larry Livermore. Um, you can actually check out excerpts from Lookout Magazine over on his site at LarryLivermore.com. You can also go there or uh, directly to uh, Don Giovanni Records if you want to buy his new book. It's out now. It's called Spy Rock Memories. Uh, so thanks so much to Larry for, for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, I want to thank Brian for editing this. Uh, I want to thank Mark and everybody else at Boing Boing for hosting it. I want to thank you for listening and uh, for rating on iTunes, which I'm sure you're going to do. Uh, if you want to listen to more episodes, you can follow us on Tumblr. It's riylcast.tumblr.com. Um, or just shoot us an email. It's uh, riyl. Uh, cast as well at uh, gmail.com we'll be back uh, in a week or so with a new interview 